At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Boat Trader, America's largest boating marketplace, offering easy financing and over 100,000 boat listings to choose from. Sell, find, and finance new or used boats on America's largest boating marketplace. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. You've probably worked with most, if not all, of those breeds. We've worked with quite a few. And you've settled on a German short hair. Yeah. Why do you settle on a German short hair? Well, it's, a, it's an interesting question. Well, they say there are no bad dogs, just bad dog trainers. What do you think, Covey? Covey knows a dog trainer, and so do I. Was he pretty good, Covey? Yeah, he was pretty good. Covey's uh, here to tell us about her trainer, which is an incredible dog whisperer named Ethan Pippet. But he's not real crazy about either Covey and or her breed. He's got this crazy idea there's a better dog breed out there, the best all-around dog for anyone who loves to upland bird hunt, maybe throw in a little bit of waterfowl hunting as well. He thinks he's got the ticket. I might have a bone to pick with him, but we're going to find out all about dog training with Ethan Pippett at Standing Stone Kennels on this episode of Ron Spomer Outdoors Podcast. Well, everybody, dogs, of course, are an integral part of the hunting community. And if you've ever enjoyed one, you will understand what's going to happen on this program. We are going to discuss hunting dogs and what makes them great. And it's the trainer as well as the dog breed. But Ethan has been training dogs for I don't know how many years now, and he's extremely successful. He's got podcasts and he does videos. And he and his wife, Kat, train dogs to a fare thee well. So anything good that Covey does, they get blamed for it. <laughs> so, Ethan, welcome to Ron Spomer Outdoors Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Ron. Thanks for having me. Oh, hey, it's my pleasure. I obviously want to know more about dogs, even though I've had them most of my life. I've had many hunting dogs. I'm just always impressed by someone who just seems to have a natural ability to communicate with the dog and train it as effectively as you and your wife do. Um, when did you guys get started in dog training? Uh, well, this would be, I believe, year number 13 for me professionally 13. dog training. Um, it actually started with purchasing a dog and not knowing 100% what I needed to be doing. And I am yeah. fairly uh, hard-headed in a sense. And I, anything I set my mind to do, I can do. So I'll get this dog and it doesn't matter what kind of dog it is. It's just a dog. I'll train it and it will be able to do all of these wonderful things. And yeah. um I found out pretty quick that I do not know everything about dog training. And at that point in time, I needed to reach out for additional help. So uh-huh. um, I moved into um, reaching out to people via the internet and it came across a kennel that had put up a handful of videos. And I actually ended up moving into a position, helping them with videos and social marketing and sales of the dogs that they had. And that turned into a full-time position at the kennel where I, I took an entry-level position scooping poop. So that's where scooper. everybody learns. I think that's where everybody learns. How, so how many years did you apprentice there? Um, I worked there three years, full-time dog training. So, um, and worked my way up through everything. I did a lot of observation uh, via videoing. I got to watch lots and lots of training sessions and I'm a visual learner. So that really helped me. And, Mm -hmm. um, then I had my one dog that I was talking about before and got to kind of apply those things and then picked up a second dog and, uh, as a project and then picked up another dog as a project and, um, kind of continued to grow as, you know, on, on the fly, if you will. Mm Mm-hmm. And what what dogs were those? What was that first dog that you had? So it's interesting. Uh, growing up, I I didn't have a lot of experience with dogs or bird dogs. Um, we had a English, not an English, an American cocker, a fluffy eared, uh, oh, yeah. just 
awful dog named Claire. And I, again, no such thing as a bad dog. Only a bad dog trainer is probably more to be attributed in that situation. Uh, she ran away a lot. She didn't know a lot of anything. And, um, you know, looking back at that, I went, wow, we really did a lot wrong with her. But um, my uncle and my grandpa had bird dogs. And at that, at that point in time, it was kind of like a generic term. They had bird dogs and a lot of them were mutts or crossbreeds. They had Brittany pointers. They had, uh, pointer short hair crosses. They had Brittany short hair crosses. They had, uh, a, a couple purebred Weimariners though. And then maybe a Weimariner pointer cross. All this large collection of dogs, I believe all of their names were Queenie or Queen or some combination of the above. Um, but I had it in my mind that I really wanted a Weimariner. And when I asked my parents about getting a bird dog, they said, as soon as you're not here, we don't care what you do. Have fun. And <laughs> so I made it a point when I moved out to try and find a dog. Now, I... I was working for the Geek Squad uh, as a computer technician repair guy through college, and I actually set up or repaired or did did some computer work for a bird dog guy local to Grand Forks, North Dakota. That's where I went to, to college at. And I was like, so he had some plaques and some trophies and different stuff, and he had some bird dogs and kennels out back. And I started talking to him. Well, he actually had pointers. He said, I really think that what you're explaining, you're looking for that a short hair would be a really good option. And I was like, well, I don't even know what a short hair is. That doesn't sound like a full name. So <laughs> did a little research and came up with the fact that they are German short hair pointers. And I'll be honest, I fell in love with the way that they looked via pictures on the internet. And, hmm. uh, I set out to find myself a German short hair pointer that looked exactly like the picture of the pretty one that I saw on the internet and oh, yeah. <laughs> um, bought the first short hair that I found in the paper. Uh, it was ah. $200 and um, it was a fairly, uh, a fairly big, I say mistake, but at the same time I learned a lot from that dog. Yeah. Why was it a mistake? Um, you know, it was every, it was absolutely everything at this point in my career that I recommend people don't do when they're looking for a new dog. Um, I picked a dog, uh, basically the first dog that I found based solely on the way that the dog looked, not really yeah. any other information about its background or its history or its health or anything. Um, and then when I actually looked at the papers and the genetics behind the dog, I found out that she was, uh, more trial bred. Um, trials meaning mm -hmm. field trials, AKC mm -hmm. or field stud dog book. They're bigger running dogs, not necessarily designed for family companions and foot hunting guys like I was and planned to be. Um, so she was a challenge. She had a lot of go. Um, she ran too big. She needed handled constantly. She had way more energy than we could really manage and deal with. Um, and it took a ton of training and focus and energy and effort to learn. So I say a mistake because it probably was the exact wrong dog for me, but at the same time, um, the dog that taught me so much. So ended up being maybe the right dog for me. Um, it's, it's one of those things though, that I would not recommend at this point going about buying a bird dog in that fashion. So how is a cat figuring in on this? Is she a dog lady? Did you meet her through dogs or how did I, she get into it? Yeah. So not exactly. Um, she did, she did grow up hunting, uh, deer hunting, bird <laughs> hunting, different stuff with her dad, but they never had a dog. Um, they had a friend, family friend that had some ground and they ended up hunting with him and he had a number of different dogs, I believe primarily labs, but I do think he had a bird dog at some point in time in there, but it was always, let's go talk to Kent and see if we can use his bird dog to find this bird we dropped in the ditch or, um, whatever. Now, uh, she kind of grew up a cat lady. I don't want to say cat lady, but she, they had cats <laughs> and, uh, cat with cats. It, yes. Yes. And that was more her thing. So when we, um, we ended up started dating and we were together in college, it was, uh, 
we got a cat. She, you know, batted those little eyes and sweet talked me into cat, which cats are like my least favorite creature in the world. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know what it is. I don't like the hair. I don't like the, the independence, the, I like something that's willing to be around you when you want to and not when you don't kind of deal. But, um, she liked cats and, and that's made a big, a big switch for her now. Um, I, I still don't, I don't think she dislikes cats, but she's definitely more a fan of, of dogs at this point, which is oh. ideal. Yeah. Well, let's, so the two of you then work together. Does she, she train right alongside you or do you take different dogs when you're training or how do you work it? Yeah. So that's made a big evolution over the last, you know, decade. This is our 10th year in business together. So, um, that happened. The anniversary would be, I think, June 1st, maybe, would be what we technically call the anniversary of starting our business. So it's 10 years in June here. And mm-hmm. um, to begin with, we did everything uh, side by side or or split tasks. Um, when we started out, it was just her and I. And we had the responsibility of a growing string of dogs in for training. It started with like about six dogs or seven dogs and grew to about 15 to 18, depending on the time and, um, caring for them seven days a week, 365. Uh, we split those tasks, you know, it was sunrise sunset for, uh, approximately five years. We had a couple people bop in there that we got employees for a short period of time, but most of them didn't last. Um, when we started, we lived out in Norton. Kansas, which is for anybody that doesn't know, that's Northwest Kansas. It's pretty rural. It was a small town, small community, not a large pool of people to pull and and people from not a large, not a big city. So there weren't a lot of people to try and employ. And, um, starting out, we couldn't pay a ton. So that, you know, lowers the level of, uh, again, the number of people available and, we struggled. Um, and I'll com- completely honest. I mean, there were some times in there that I contemplated giving it all up just cause it was too much work, too much stress, too much on, on both of us. Um, mm-hmm. but about five years in, we, we got the opportunity to move. We said, we're either going to break or we need to make some changes. And, um, we moved out here near Hutchinson, Kansas, which is closer to Wichita, South central part of the state. And, um, I think within three months had a couple employees and, and have then continued to grow from there. So the, the big switch as far as changing, um, to begin with Kat and I trained dogs together, I would say that I did initially, especially because she didn't have the same level of experience. Um, she did a little bit of training with me, uh, in the beginning, but you know, like six months worth of minus handling and caring for our own personal dogs. So I definitely had a little more experience to begin with when we started and I did a majority of the training, but she did, you know, she took on dogs and did her, her part. And we kind of split some of the beginning entry level stuff and then the more advanced stuff and rotated through things. Um, but now at this point we've kind of made a, a shift completely to where Kat and I are more assistant trainers. Um, we, my sole responsibility now is, and I say this lightly because it sounds bad, but it's the term that I use problem dogs. Okay. Dogs that come in that don't follow the, the easy path, if you will. Um, they require a little more in tuneness to exactly what you're doing and exact timing and a little more creativity thinking outside the box on how to, um, improve things, how to make progressions and, so those would be the dogs that I primarily work with, but we have a full-time um, gal that works training now. Her name's Jessica, um, does an absolutely fantastic job. And she started shortly after we moved here. So she's been um, training dogs. It'll be six, five and a half years, six years in, in December for her. So um, she actually has more experience now than I did when I started Standing Stone Kennels, which is kind of cool. It's, uh, it's, it's been a cool thing to grow. Yeah. Let's go uh, with some uh, standard dog training stuff. I think most of our listeners are going to want to know about what can I do if I get a dog. So let's go. How do I pick the right dog for for what I do? And let's 
Let's stick with upland bird hunting. Okay. So most guys are interested in hunting pheasants. Maybe up in the north woods, they're looking for ruffed grouse, but they want the ability to run out west, maybe find some sharp tails, even some prairie chickens up in South Dakota. Uh, so you're looking for an upland bird dog primarily. Let's talk about what breed you want to get and why. Mm-hmm. And then let's talk about later the problem dogs that you specialize in but because i think that's what holds a lot of guys back it's like i've heard about or i've seen this dog my buddy has and we'd get more birds if we just left the dog in the truck because she scares spooks them all away and chews them if she finds them and there's all kinds of problems but it obviously doesn't have to be that way there are plenty of dog people who understand that a well-trained dog is going to really increase your success of field and your enjoyment so let's start with the first thing is how do you pick the right dog for an upland bird hunting dog? Well, uh, you know, there are a lot of different breeds out there. And as breeds grow in popularity, you see more and more of them. Um, I am a short hair fan. Absolutely love short hairs. But when I became a short hair fan, they weren't um, arguably the number one breed of dogs in the United States. And, and as they are fighting, probably... Uh, to surpass Labradors at this point from the the current metrics. They are moving into the number one dog in the United States. It's a sporting breed. Um, it's a good and a bad thing, right? It's helped us grow, but it's also um, grown to run into some problems as well. I would say the key when you begin is to um, to find somebody breeding dogs that has the same goals as you. That is the the key factor here. You need somebody because a lot of times people get wrapped up in um, pedigrees or titles or this dog's got all these champion things. Well, that's not necessarily uh, important and it doesn't necessarily fall into the category of what you're looking for. Like I mentioned with my first dog, she had some some title dogs and champions behind her, but they were at a game that didn't help her to fit into the category of what I was looking for, which is a dog that would stay within a reasonable distance of me while I'm walking through a field. So the, the first and foremost would be even before um, selecting a breed itself uh, is to know what you specifically want. And if you don't know what you want, call and talk to somebody that does know a little bit and say, I kind of have this idea. Does this sound like a reasonable thing? You know, have a conversation about it. And once you know what you're looking for, then, um, then there are different breeds that, that fit those things. Okay. So you've got, um, some versatility, but that includes family orientation with a lot of breeds anymore. The, the bird dog world is shifting away from tools and more into family companions as well as hunting companions. And I think that the the biggest thing is there are a lot of good dogs out there and there are a lot of good dogs in every breed. And I mean, let's face it, you like the way a dog looks or you like those aspect of things. Those are all important things to take into consideration. You shouldn't wor- wake up every morning and go, man, you are ugly or I, I, I really don't like <laughs> this or that or whatever about you. So it is a factor. But once you kind of, you kind of lean that direction and that's what it typically is. You know, it's, I like the beard, so I want to get a scruffy dog or I like the coat and the tail. So I want to get a setter or I want to get a pointer because they hold their tails higher. Um, I like short hairs have mixed coloring things. So that can play a role into it and it's going to draw you a direction, but then find a breeder that says their goals fall in line with with what you're looking for. And um, I would say on average, when somebody calls, they're going to ask you. So if someone calls me, and I'm even guilty of this, I'll say, um, uh, what are your goals with this dog? What are you looking for? What do you want? And I know that I'm honest because we have 100% guarantee on our dogs and we want our dogs to go to the right place. And um, I'm going to say, our dogs are not the right fit for you. But somebody else may not. They may just say, oh, yeah, our dogs check X, Y, Z. So ask them to begin with. Say, what would you categorize your dogs as? What are their strengths? What are their weaknesses? Um, and then mm-hmm. see if they say, well, we have the you know 
10th national field trial champion of the whatever, then that's probably not going to be the right fit for you. But if they say we are, uh, you know, a family based operation, our dogs are part of our family and live in the house and we hunt upland game and we go pheasant hunting and quail hunting and we go to the woods to hunt rough grouse or, um, even the opposite of that. If you live in the North woods and you want a grouse dog, there are some differences, some some nuances that the personality is going to be different. You're going to have a dog that's maybe a little more cooperative, maybe a little more methodical. That dog will probably excel better in the thick, dense cover of the woods versus a dog that I'm primarily a prairie guy uh, where you can see dogs for 50 to 200 yards or more, depending on where you're at. So I'm okay with a dog that runs a little bigger where in the woods, 30, 40 yards are going to disappear. So I think it comes down to being honest about what you're looking for and then finding the breeder that is going to apply those things to their program. So if I'm reading this right, I as a dog owner or I as a hunter want to be dog owner would say, how do I like to hunt? What do I like to hunt? Why And what dog is going to fit that? So I like to hunt the prairies of the Dakotas and Nebraska into Kansas. Yep. I know that that's big open country and I need a dog that's going to run and find the birds, lock down and hold them till I get there. I don't need a dog that's going around my feet like a Springer Spaniel flushing things. I don't need it to point it once I'm within range of it already anyway so much as find the birds because I can't cover that much country as opposed to the rough grouse hunter who's back in the woods saying, I don't need my dog moving out 400 yards I have no idea where she is anymore, even if I have a bell on her or a beeper on her. So you need to assess those things for yourself before you jump in. And if you don't understand all of that, you're just getting started as a hunter. Then I think what you're saying about ask them what their dogs do. But I think at the same time, since they're probably hunters, if they're breeding and training hunting dog, you can ask them, what do you think I would benefit from in a breed and its behavior and its performance based on what I'm dreaming of? hunting. That sound right? Yeah, it sounds very accurate. And like I was explaining with the, the shift towards family orientation and the rise in popularity of sporting breeds, um, mm -hmm. it's one of those things that there are a lot of people just breeding to breed at this point and they don't actually hunt the dogs and they don't actually know mm -hmm. if the dogs have, you know, if the generic response is, oh yeah, they're from good hunting lines and they can't say, yes, we hunt North Dakota, South Dakota, Nebraska, or somewhere in between there, you know, it, it doesn't apply. So you've got to buyer be, beware at this point. There's a, there's a lot of people out there trying to turn a buck because they see the, the drive and popularity. So, yeah. Yeah. I guess that's something to definitely look out for. Don't just buy a pig in a poke, but of course you buy a dog from a, an, established breeder doesn't necessarily mean that that puppy is going to turn into what its parents were. I mean, it increases the odds, right? Correct. And it is a game of odds. Um, yeah. You've got uh, a couple things that play into that. First and foremost, um, line breeding and coefficients of inbreeding can increase that outcrosses and explain a little bit on these. So line breeding would be having similarities. A lot of people probably hear the term uh, inbreeding, right? Where it's cousins or family members or something like that. And they apply that to people and it seems very strange or not something that would be a good thing. Um, but if you look at all breeding programs with cattle or any number of other animals out there, line breeding or breeding similar dogs together allows you to build consistency by slightly shrinking the gene pool. So there's not quite as much of a gamble. You get more consistency and that's a big part of our program. Now you can go too far with everything too big of an outcross provides you that larger uh, crap shoot, if you will, too tight of an inbreeding um, would, or too tight of a line breeding would move you into too small of a gene pool and genetics themselves and nature will say, this isn't good. And you can run into the other problems there more comes down to how clean lines are. So when you are looking at the established breeders, typically they have some form of program where they are doing some amount of line breeding, even if it's a little bit, and that's going to drastically increase chances of consistency within litters and consistency is going to produce results. 
Yeah, so that line breeding is really it's essential to creating even a breed of dog. You know, if we, we have all these mixed breeds of dogs, well, you're not going to cross a setter with a pug and expect to come up with anything usable. You know, they're all canines, they're all dogs, but the reason that we have effective lines of a particular style of setter or short hair or pointer is that they've been line bred for the consistency to produce the kind of drive or steadiness or ability to retrieve or willingness to retrieve. All of those traits, of course, are genetic. Exactly. So you're more likely to get what you said, the consistency, if you go with a line bred animal. And I mean, that that gets back to what you guys are doing at Standing Stone Kennels. You're working with certain German short hairs that do certain things. And you've, if you've got a good one that does them better than the others, that's the one you want to breed, exactly. right? Not all yeah, dogs so you are get created a male and a equal. Female. Yeah. They might all go to heaven, but they're not all created equal <laughs> while they're working down here. <laughs> well, the, the interesting thing about that is there were some studies done and they utilized boxes kind of to try and mimic the domestication of dogs. So dogs are 99.9% genetically the same as wolves. And they say that all domestic dogs at some point in time have descended from wolves and people make comparisons with that about diets and oh they should be eating raw because they're basically wolves or you know i don't know whatever those kind of things fall in but in the specific study with boxes and you look this up it was interesting um i think it was by like generation seven to eight of simply breeding out aggression so they took the least aggressive most um friendly foxes and bred them to other mm -hmm. friendly foxes. And as they bred the aggression out by generation, I believe seven, six or seven, um, they started to see changes in the foxes, um, like curly tails, floppy ears, yeah. different physical attributes yep. that are, you know, show that that's probably how things change to go. And then again, continuing to line breed on specific characteristics that those individual dogs had. To reproduce that again, um, yeah, kind of a kind of a neat thing, and how how stuff got over years and years and years, but didn't happen overnight. <laughs> so with a with a hunting dog, you're not breeding foxes; you're breeding established dogs that have already been proven for generations and generations to do something well. Yep. And with most upland bird dogs, we're talking pointing dogs, not necessarily flushers. Yeah, I mean, I, let's just put the spaniels and the other fleshing breeds off to the side for now and go with any dog that points. Okay. So you've got your pure pointing dogs, English pointers, setters to a large degree, and then the more versatile ones like Brittany's, German short hairs, perhaps Vislas, Weimaraners, and all the rest of them. You've probably worked with most, if not all of those breeds. We've worked with quite a and few. And you've settled on a German short hair. Yeah. Why do you settle on a German short hair? Well, it's, a, it's an interesting question. And it does come into the the same thing. People ask that a lot, you know, and we have worked with all of the different breeds and, and here we stay. I haven't come across something that fits me better. And that's the key here is it fits me. Um, they are a slightly more energetic of the collection of breeds, personality, attitude wise. They're spunky. They've got a lot of go. I'm a young individual, fairly active in the sense of I can kind of keep up with that energy level. I think if I was um, in a different place in my life, the energy level of a short hair could be more than what I'm looking for. But definitely at this place, the other side of it, and this has changed in the last probably four or five years, but I would say um, of the dogs that we get to work with, most consistently, short hairs fall into the category of mentally stable. Um, mentally stable, meaning can deal with the change, can deal with being in the kennel facility, new people, new environments. And a lot of people chalk that up to, well, they weren't socialized properly or, you know, this, that, and another thing. Well, as you mentioned before, I'm a firm believer that everything is genetic. And though you can change, uh, for the better or the worse with conditioning or, or, not socializing properly or not doing or doing things really, really well with a dog. I think that dogs are predisposed to be something and the path of least resistance is that genetic um, makeup. So 
everything is genetic. And if, unless you're putting a lot of effort into abusing or neglecting or not giving the dog what they need, like a lot of effort into that, you're not going to negatively impact how that dog develops. And then the other side of it would be if you're putting a lot of effort into doing everything right, properly introducing things, and that timing will be different. If you have a a slower to mature dog or a higher drive dog, those timelines are going to be different. So um, it just comes down to as you, you put that together with the individual dog, the timeline is going to be different. And if you are putting all of the, you know, every step of the way is optimal for that dog. You can take a dog out of that genetic path. Again, that path of least resistance into something better than what they would have maybe naturally been on their own, um, which is what we do for a lot of dogs. But to say this dog came in and this is something we hear pretty regularly, like people will rescue a dog or people will get a dog and they need help with it. And they're like, it's obvious that the dog was abused. Uh, or abused mm-hmm. by the last trainer or, you know, any of these number of different things where they apply something bad that happened that created this. And I'm like, I, you know, realistically, the dog was predisposed to be flighty or to be mentally unstable or to have these potential issues. And um, short hairs up until more recently fell into a category of it was like any short hair that came in did well. Um, now, as they've been being bred more, I think that there's a little dilution to that. There's also the standpoint of just not having, um, you know, quite as strong of, of goals in mind. It's more of a, we've got two short hairs and they fit this, the fact that they're short hairs. So let's breed them and let's create more. And that kind of waters down that. Um, and we are getting more dogs from outside programs and stuff that have some nervous ticks or some other quirky things or some hmm. they struggle with settling in at the facility or they you know they lack drive or desire or, or any number of different characteristics where um there are good dogs in every breed and why we specifically have stuck with short hairs is they I love them first of all but they they have a generally really good turnout for all of the things I like dogs that are mentally stable Dogs that are adaptable to situations. And um, and the biggest part of that is I can send that dog to you or to the new puppy buyer or whoever that may be. And I can trust that they're going to take the path of least resistance, which means they're going to turn out to be a good dog. So, hmm. and But that's, that kind of consistency then must have come from years and years of line breeding, good quality stuff, not this indiscriminate backyard breeding program. Yeah, a hundred percent. And, um, I, you know, I would say that the, to be a dog breeder, you have to be able to look at the situation objectively as well as, um, to be a good dog trainer. You have to be able to take a step back and remove, uh, emotions from it, right? The number one problem that the average kennel could have or that could prevent them from growing would be kennel blindness. And that is, Everything here is good enough to breed. No, that is not the case. And the number one question I've asked people, so we we offer stud services, and this is a little tangent, but we offer stud services with our proven males and things to people that are looking to do breedings. And the first question I ask people is, if there was one thing you could change about your dog, what would it be? It's a very simple question that if answered honestly, um, you know, people are going to have something. She does this Mm -hmm. or she does that, or I would like her to run bigger, or I would like her to be smaller, or I would like, you know, anything at all means that they're openly looking at what the dog is and they're trying to improve it. There's no such thing Mm -hmm. as a perfect dog. I don't own one. Um, but what we do have is dogs that are really nice and we try and provide a match to them that complements them genetically on paper so that we can continue the line breeding path. But at the same time, um, complements them with all of the, the physical attributes that you see, which ultimately those come from the genetics behind them, right? So whether it's a dog with a good nose or a dog that's steady or a dog that's a better retriever, all of those things play into or better confirmation. Health is huge. Um, all of 
all of those things have to be taken into consideration. And we do have some no-fly zones, automatic things that are going to eliminate dogs. And then the other side of it is a, it's a, is this something that adds to what we have or is this something that takes us a step back? So from a buyer's perspective, these are the things you want to ask of the breeder in, in, in your line. I mean, I guess we could just turn this around and I could say to you, I'm looking sure. for a dog now. Yeah. Ethan, what's the, the one thing about your dogs you wish were better? you know, in your line, that kind of a question would then, well, you know, my dogs are superior in all aspects, except for they really don't like to retrieve that much. Or they're sometimes a little bit aggressive. You kind of have to watch them. They like to get a little snappy or they wimp out. I don't know, whatever it is, but those are things one needs to consider. Boy, I mean, it's just, it sounds like it's a tough thing to pick up a, a hunting dog, you know, for especially someone who's never had one before. What kind of advice would you give to some hunter who's never had the dog and he's just asking you, he's heard that German short hairs are good. How do you help him assess if the short hair is what he needs? Um, it's going to start with the the interviewing process, basically. I'm going to ask what the goals are. And we work with a lot of people that we sell first-time dogs to. And it's the same situation. What are your goals? And um, one thing that we do try and steer clear of is um, people that don't have an understanding of sporting breeds in general need a job because they are working dogs. And without some form of a job, and I'm not even personally a huge stickler on they have to be hunters um, because there are so many awesome things that you can do with dogs that don't actually involve hunting. Um, and our dogs excel at a lot of those from, uh, detection work to, um, you know, dock diving, swimming, adventuring, just camping, hiking, running. We do have a few people that are like long distance runners or even marathon runners. They're like, I want a running companion and a short hair is going to easily be able to keep up with that aspect of things. So the new dog guy that's trying to get into his first dog needs to just find somebody that he feels comfortable with, somebody that's going to help guide him and somebody that's going to provide a long-term relationship. Um, our puppies are not a transaction. Um, it, is a, it is a relationship. And we, we follow along as they develop and grow and we're here to reach out to. Um, I mentioned it before briefly, but we want to find the right dog for every family and the right family for every dog. And we have a 100% guarantee on that. I. If the dog doesn't work out, it's a really hard thing and it doesn't happen very often, but it has a couple times. And we want the opportunity to make that situation right for the dog and, and the family. So find somebody that's willing to, to work with and coach and, and be part of it. And it doesn't feel like here's your puppy. Goodbye. You know, it's not a vacuum cleaner. So, yeah. So what does that look like with you and Kat? Somebody buys a dog from you, you stay in touch with them, or they stay in touch with you? Do you set things up so that you can have monthly meetings, or you just leave it up to them to call and say, hey, I've got an issue here. Can you help me out? Yeah, How does that work? Absolutely. So we have the door always open um, kind of policy, and we mention that to everybody. Um, and then we have two main online base. So it is uh, an internet world, and that's the easiest way to kind of keep track of things and people. But um we have a Facebook group that is called Rolling with the Stones. And um, everybody that buys a, <laughs> yes, not the band, and uh, but Rolling with the Stones. Um, and almost a huge, a huge, excuse me, a huge majority of the puppy buyers that we have are in that Facebook group. Um, they can make posts about their dogs. They can brag about their dogs. Mm-hmm. They can... Um, connect with other people that got dogs from the same litter. We've had a ton of people reach out and they're like, oh, you have a puppy from the first, you know, grit vex litter. Well, I'm in the second grit vex litter. And then they meet up and go hunt somewhere. So um, it's a, it's a really cool family or, or community that we're trying to create. Um, the other side of it is we do have a, a pay platform. Um, it's via Patreon. And that private club that you do pay a subscription to, we're set up to answer questions every day. So we we walk you through potty training and we walk through basic obedience training into the hunting training if you want to do that yourself or preparation to send them to someone. 
So hmm. via the internet, we do our best okay. to provide resources that way. Yeah, that sounds like a, I mean, that's way better than buying a dog in somebody's backyard and saying sayonara, and that's the last you ever see of him, and you really don't get any help. This is really a nice feature of your your operation. And one tends to think of a of a kennel as someplace where you shove the dog while you go on vacation. Hey, take care of our dog till we get back. But others understand it as a place to buy a good dog, a kennel usually breeding a line of dogs. You've got those services, but m- you're way more than that. You've taken it to a personal level. When you keep track of folks and you have a community on Facebook and, and Patreon and they can come and work with you and ask you questions, you stay in touch. That is, that's a significant value above and beyond just the cost of the dog. You're really buying more than a dog, right? Uh, absolutely. It's um, a lot of this was driven or uh, built around what my original experience was getting a dog. And Every time I have a situation where um, we talk to a lot of people and a lot of people, like you're mentioning the first time guy trying to get a dog, I was that person, right? I had questions that nobody had answers to. I looked for information that I couldn't really find. It's, you know, like if you look on the internet and you search a dog breed, they all pretty much have the same generic description. Uh, The dog is a good dog. You know, it's, there's not a lot of information there. So, um, what we've tried to do is provide everything that we found a hole for in the beginning steps. And that involves, um, you know, not only that community to keep track of the people that got puppies from us and to be that connection where we can say, we, the, like I said, the door's always open, reach out to us sooner rather than later. Cause we want to help you. And then, um, to be able to follow through with here is a training program. Here is um, information. We have the YouTube channel where we create videos. All of that content is free. I'm not, people say, why don't you monetize this and whatever else? It's not a huge part of what we're trying to do. I want the information there so that you can, if you want to do this yourself, you can follow along. You can get help. That's a better chance for our dogs to be successful in their new homes and people to be successful with the dogs. Mm -hmm. Less dogs ending up in pounds or situations where... They are neglected because you know, like we can't deal with this dog. We don't know how to handle and we don't know what to do. I was there. I yeah. I one hundred percent understand that feeling. And um and the quote unquote silly questions that you get, like there's no dumb question, right? You know, it's if you've got a question, ask it. I probably already did. Like I just explained. I bought a dog out of the paper based on what it looked like and knew that if it didn't have the right ticking marks, I wasn't going home with it. So literally made every mistake that I try and coach people away from now. And we want to continue to be able to provide that for, for people that, uh, you know, are looking to get their first dog or, or getting uh, a second or a third, or maybe their final dog. We get calls like that. Hey, I'm 75 years old and this is going to be my last dog. Um, if the dog, if I, if, if I outlive this dog or something, you know, those kind of conversations. And it's, um, being able to know our lines and genetics and breedings well enough to say this caters more toward what you're looking for. And then once we get into that breeding specifically, pick the puppy that this puppy has the best potential to, again, cater toward what you explain. So um, hmm. knowing the dogs, knowing the program is is a big part of that. Yeah. So let's get back to your defense of the Jeremy Short here. We've kind of danced around it, but <laughs> can you concisely lay out what makes the German Short here, in your estimation, the best upland game bird hunting dog? Okay. So um, I believe that they are. Now, I believe that they are because that is what I specifically want and need and do. So they fit me the best for what I am doing. Now, the things that are awesome about them is they're mentally stable, like I mentioned before, especially if bred well. And that stability allows you to uh, adapt to new environments. Okay. So traveling with them, they don't get stressed. They're happy to be there. They bounce. You know, you could go on a 14 hour road trip. They're going to come out of the box and they're going to be ready to go do whatever. They don't skip meals. They don't get weirded out at the hotel that we're staying at. Um, all of those stressors can really decline the performance level of the dog on your trip. 
And if you're going to take only a handful of trips a year, you know, it would be ideal for the dog to be able to do well in the limited number of times that you're going to be able to do that. Now, on top of mental stability, um, they, they fall into the realm of versatility. And we look for true versatility, which is a dog that can hunt waterfowl in the morning, hunt upland game in the afternoon, and or be able to cross bodies of water. A lot of times when we're hunting in sloughs or the prairie pothole region up north, there is water that you will drop a pheasant in and having a dog that will confidently go out in the water, pick up the bird and come back allows us to be better hunters and more successful hunters. And then um, at the end of the day, they're extremely family oriented. Our We actually at this stage in the game don't sell and won't sell dogs to kennel environments. Our dogs do best as part of the family and that wraps up for us true versatility. So I don't have the ability to, and I don't think the average person does, have the ability to own one dog for every individual program um, where an example would be a waterfowl dog, a retriever is going to be the optimal dog for that situation. And a southern um, upland dog, a pointer or a setter, based on how they've been bred for generations after generations of being maybe a lighter coated, they can take the heat a little better depending on the specific setters. And we can talk about that with yours um, as well. But let's just give one example. English pointers, um, they're going to outperform the average dog in the South. That's what they're bred for. Um, Where if you look at the Northwoods, you need a dog that's a little hardier. It's a little colder. The country's thicker, tougher. Um, They need to be able to hold up to that. And then um, there are pets, you know, that maybe would make better just true companions only and have no other job other than that. But if you only can have one dog, um, you know, it's kind of like if you can only have one shotgun, the Remington 870 is a a good do it all. And I kind of jokingly refer to short hairs as being that Um, they have the true versatility. They can do it all. Mm-hmm. And they're pretty reliable retrievers, strong retrievers. I've had folks claim that their short hair retrieves better than the last lab they yeah, had. If bred for it, 100%. Yep, if bred for it. Um, mm-hmm. Now, it's an interesting thing you mentioned that because if you look at versatile dogs, I can often provide the visual of versatility, true versatility would be a 180 degree sliding scale. You have retriever on one side, you have pointer on the other side. True versatility would be a 50-50 split, right? You've got solid retriever, solid pointer. Now, anytime in your breeding program, if that starts to shade one direction or the other, what happens? You lose the other. So if your versatile dogs get too far towards that retrieving game, they typically don't do as good a job at pointing naturally or standing steady. Now, if they go more towards the pointing side, typically typically you lose a little bit of desire for the retrieving. So we always strive for that with a shade toward the pointing side. I am breeding bird dogs, and mm-hmm. though I want versatility, I do not need a German short hair retriever. So, yeah. What about noses in the short hairs? How does it compare with your average pointer? Most of us assume and think, and it's probably true, that the pointer has the best nose out there. I've seen it in some situations. How do you guys stack up against that? It's an interesting thing. Noses are a very, um, a very, very unique and interesting trait for the dog to have and how to actually truly measure that. Okay, so um, I think that Noses can be measured visually by how far away from a bird a dog can scent and stop and point. Um, That would be one Mm -hmm. factor. The other would be uh, a nose combined with their brain and the ability to focus on, let's say, a track, a running pheasant. Can they stay on the track of the bird and focus until they find it or track it out? Um, And then the other aspect of it would be... um, Probably one of the best bird finders that I ever got the opportunity to hunt behind was a quote-unquote short-nosed dog. If she locked up on point, there was a bird within three to five feet of her, always. I mean, it was, it was, you knew the bird was right there if 
Callie was her name, one of our foundation females. If she locked up on point, the bird was right there. Um, now, sometimes I believe that that would be the distance the bird lock, the dog locks up from the bird can be a training or conditioning thing. With our young dogs, we kind of teach them to be a little more cautious, trust their nose, and then be able to stop at those distances, but learn, you know, if the bird has moved, that they could also move. You know, it's an intelligent hunting dog. So I think the development is a little bit different. Um, But as far as truly, how do their noses stack up? I mean, our dogs are really good, and it is something that we breed for, bird finding ability, which is the the ultimate test of a dog's nose. How do they compare to the other dogs on the ground or other people's dogs that we're hunting with a knack for finding birds? And I almost believe that there is as much like an inherent ability to understand how birds work that comes with experience. But um, I've had dogs, even within our personal lines, that are better at finding birds. Like I know at wild bird dogs. Um, Nick's being one of them. He is a he is a wild bird find and fool. And other dogs that I own have had as much, if not more, experience, but they don't have the same level of knack that he does. If you put them both on the ground, like he's going to outfind them. Now, is that geared towards nose? I mean, I, I don't think so. They can point birds at the same distance, but they just understand better, you know, and that comes down to probably an intelligence category of being able to effectively hunt cover. And understanding um, objectives. Uh, objectives are a, a dog term often used just to relate to, you know, like if we're going to hunt this field, are the birds typically along the edge of it near the the food plot, or are they near down by the cattails, or are they just in the center of this, you know, thin cover? No, the dogs that work towards the more productive cover typically find more birds, and that's that comes down with intelligence. So, I would say that. I have no complaints with our short hairs noses. They do a good job finding birds. Um, but as far as how they stack up to other dogs, I, I think that there's a lot of factors that play into that. Mm-hmm. Well, you obviously you're convinced. I mean, I've seen your dogs in action and they're pretty impressive. And they look darn good on your photographs too. You watch some of Danny Stone Kennel's training sessions. Um, oh my gosh, those dogs are just, they're just like, the epitome of, of what a rough, tough, can handle themselves sort of dog, a no nonsense. You know, they're not the fluff and stuff dog, anything but. They just are, they're muscled and well formed and looks like they could hunt all day and be ready to go the next for a week at a time. I mean, it's impressive stuff. So, you know, you almost have me convinced, but I'm, I have to admit, I'm a little bit like you with your first dog. I still kind of go to what it looks sure. like. When I buy a dog, I like to get one that really looks good because every dog can mess up. And when yours does, at least you can say, boy, but she sure looks good doing it. <laughs> I like it. That's my excuse and I'm sticking to like it. it. Now, we might go a little long on this one, but I got to ask you some personal stuff. You trained Covey. Uh-huh. Covey is my English sure. setter. I don't know. I've probably had eight, ten English setters over the years. And uh, this one is not the best. She's not the worst. She's got certain traits that she's better at than others weren't, et cetera, et cetera. But what I would like from you, since you trained her, is an honest, really honest assessment. You're not going to hurt my feelings. Um, you might hurt Covey's. I'll, tr- I'll hold her ears here so you she won't hear it. But what is your assessment of her? I know she's not as good as some of your high, high dollar dogs, your high pressure dogs. Your, you mean? But I'm that old man who's saying this might it's not gonna be my last dog. I'm not that old, but it's like I'm slowing down. I'm not the young aggressive guy that used to go twelve miles a day at full tilt. So I don't need a dog that's going to be that aggressive. I like her to be a little more laid back. What is your assessment of Covey the English setter? So there are a couple things. Um first and foremost, we break dogs uh abilities into a couple different categories. One would be retrieving um, ability and, um, pointing ability and, um, cooperation. And all of those come down to a level of desire. And if I were to say Covey's biggest fault would be her desire category. 
Um, it just, when it comes down to it, she doesn't want to work as much as another dog. So when you start saying, let's work through this drill or let's go ahead and do this or let's run that again. She's like, meh, I'd rather not, you know, um, <laughs> uh, which is why it took a long time to get through. Cause we had her, what do we have her for Ron? Five, six months. Six months, I think. Yeah, yeah. So, and we did. I mean, part part of the reason was that I wasn't around to pick her up, but well, but you needed 100%. that time because she kind of yeah, hundred percent. And yeah. so I would say the average dog we we primarily worked with retrieving work. You um, wanted that improvement, and for anybody that is interested, there are videos of a majority of this process where we show kind of how she was in the beginning and what we were able to get through at the end, but. Um, and those can be found at Standing Stone Kennel's YouTube channel. And I think you have a, a video or two on your channel regards yeah. to pickup, yeah. right? Yeah, I think we uh, we started with one saying, hey, we're going to Standing Stone and see what kind of improvements you can make in in Covey. And then we put one or two more in as as we progressed and one at the end. And then, oh, I need to do another one about this last season. I wrote an article for American Hunter oh, awesome. Magazine that's coming out soon on her season last year. And what my goal was is in the state of Idaho, take all the legal upland game birds. And there are nine of them. Oh, nice. Five grouse, pheasants, huns, chuckers, and uh, one more. What am I thinking? At any rate, we went after all of those in one season. And as I said, I'm not a young man anymore, so we didn't go all that hard. But we picked up eight oh, wow. out of the nine. The only one we missed was the spruce grouse which is pretty limited in its range. And the place where I usually find them is having a forest fire. So we didn't even get up there. We had to prospect and look for some new ground right on the southern edge of their range, and we never found any. But overall, I was pretty pleased with how she did. You know, From your training, it was just like, man, that was worth my time and money because she's doing the retrieving. She, she's not the, the high-pressure dog. She's not a hard-charging dog. But she's getting the job done at a pace that I'm more than happy with. But you really had a struggle to get that from We her, did. Right? And that, that comes down to that desire category. So um, that's one of the things that, and I don't know if I, I didn't specifically mention this, but that's one of the things that I really like about short hairs is a desire to work is, and this may be the, the lazy dog trainer in me, um, a desire to work category is very important because a dog that wants to work with you is willing and ready to train. So you can do another drill. You can do another rep. You can continue to, to, to work through things where Covey was not that way. Uh, she was very easily overworked. Mm -hmm. And when you overwork a dog, um, they can resent the training process and they, they don't want to do it anymore. They they're done. You know, if you think about you being overworked, um, if you spend too much time at the office or if you, you know, wherever it may be, what happens to you mentally and physically, you get to the point where it's like, I, I can't take it anymore, right? I don't want to do this. And that's a, a very difficult thing to balance with dogs. And it's a, it's a, it takes enough experience to be able to understand we can't push this any faster or we're going to cause issues and you try and find different ways to build engagement and encouragement. But when it comes down to it, we do have to say you have to complete the task, right? So it's a, it is a, a balance. Now the average dog probably takes six to maybe on the long end, eight weeks to complete the process that took us six months with Cubby. Um, it's, <laughs> Oh <laughs> no, I'm really oh, feeling no, bad. <laughs> no, no, no. So, it, and, and that's, that's the difference, right? Now, what did she like to do? She liked to run. She liked to find birds. That's uh, That was fun for her. Um, but she didn't necessarily want to retrieve them. And that kind of went through a, a cycle where she was excited to retrieve them. Then she wanted to keep away and kind of eat them. And then you brought <laughs> her to me and you had just started to see some improvement at like the, she was what, two years old? Yeah, I think she was just coming on to two. And uh, yeah, she would, her, her initial bird when she was four or five months old was a sharp tail and she picked it up and 
came running right to me and I thought, oh, wow, I just hit the <laughs> jackpot. And she went right past me and took it home and wanted to eat it. Yes. <laughs> so, so, so it was like, this is mine and I'm going to keep it. So that's what you had to overcome. And I had done a little bit of training with uh, dummies, getting her to hold them and, and understand that this was a fun game we were playing now. We weren't eating it. <laughs> and then we had to make that transition to real birds and doing it on command, not just when she wanted yeah, to. Absolutely. And so that was the biggest struggle with working with her is she didn't want to be worked with. And it can be challenging. Now, I will say that's the most beneficial thing about having a team. Um, a lot of dog trainers are a one-man show or people even talk to us about it, like, Ethan, are you training my dog? Um, no, our team is training your dog. Now, what that involves is I'm going to be able to work through things and I may hit a wall or we may need a slightly different personality or we may need something to change for the dog to help them excel. And it does take mm -hmm. a lot for me to be able to step back and say, all right, somebody else can do this, but I've got a, a bigger head. You know, I said I'm strong will. I can do anything I set my mind to. Well, to be able to say, all right, so we've worked through these reps a little bit. And Jessica, our trainer, helped a lot with Covey's training. I would say, all right, so I've got her here. We've done some reps. She's not really 100% loving this. Now, I want you to take and work with her for a few weeks. You're a different personality and you're going to change the tempo and change the mood of the training in a sense of don't ask much of her, just kind of follow through with things. And she was able to then take the the leap over the little hurdle that we had. And then I would come back in. So it was a, a back and forth thing process. And as an individual, uh, I don't know that I would have got her where she ended up even in the six months time frame. So it's... Um, hmm it's important to be able to apply what the dog needs when the dog needs it to, to help them to grow. And again, a Covey's sweet dog and she finished out nice. She is not my 100% style, but the, the biggest thing I would say that she struggles with is desire to work. And then, um, if you gave her desire to work, all of those things would have moved faster because we could have done more reps or more sessions or, um, she would have been more engaged yeah. and, and happy to do it. You know, that's interesting because she's crazy to hunt. And I've always wondered, is she smarter than me? That she says, ah, this is not real. This yep. is training. Yep. The heck with you. And then once she's out in the field, you can't turn her off. She's just pointing everything. All right now, she's probably out there pointing metal arcs. She just loves to hunt birds. So it works when we're hunting and she goes hard all day. So I really don't have any complaints, but I can understand where the trainer would because she is definitely not all that interested in school. Well, that's the thing is that there are a lot of dogs that have um, high levels of trainability. There are dogs that have high levels of natural ability. There are dogs that have um, neither of both. There are dogs that have a lot of both. And the ultimate dog would be a dog that has a lot of natural ability and a lot of trainability. And I think that she does have mm -hmm. natural ability, though not being perfect. You know, she needed help with retrieving, but where she lacks is that trainability category. And, um, which is the, the best way. It's hard to put your finger on all of the things, right? Is this cooperation or is this obedience or what term do you apply to it? And the most, uh, I'd say consistent way to explain is it's just a desire to work. So if she had, the mm -hmm. highest level of desire to work that would be okay with things that are training and that would be okay with things that are hunting and all of it where, you know, if you cut down, she has the 50% level of desire to work. She likes to hunt. She doesn't like to train. Um, it's different. And I have worked with dogs like that. And that would be a dog that we would call from our personal breeding program. She would not, um, she would not make the cut here, um, for those specific reasons. We, I would take a dog with more, trainability and less natural ability over a dog with more natural ability and less trainability because ultimately mm -hmm. you know we need dogs that are, are willing to work and please and happy to learn things so yeah 
Well, you certainly have them in your short hairs. I can understand why you like that breed, Ethan. You know, it's interesting about dog training and discussing hunting dogs and everything, of course, is that it just seemed to never run out of topics to discuss. So we may want to bring you on again down the road and we will tightly focus. We'll see what sort of comments we get from our listeners on this. And if it looks like they want some more detailed information, you think we can go back to the well here and bring you oh, on yeah, again? Oh, yeah, absolutely love that. Oh, that would be great. Now, in the meantime, how can they access you directly, either to investigate getting a German short hair from you or maybe using your services as a trainer? Uh, you can find us most places on the web via Standing Stone Kennels. So uh, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, um, Patreon, and then we also have an online dog training supply store. So we not only teach you, we would provide you the dog, we teach you how to train it, and then provide you with all of the equipment that we use and recommend. Great. And you're in central Kansas. Kansas. Easily accessible from anywhere. (laughs) Smack dab in the center. (laughs) The heartland of America. Ethan, I really want to thank you for joining us. Folks, I was Ethan Pippett at Standing Stone Kennels. He and his wife, Kat, and their entire team really know dogs, especially German shorthairs. That's the, the breed that they work with and sell. If you're looking for a great hunting dog, I would have to recommend, even though I love the look and the style of an English setter, if you really want a dog that can do it all, Ethan and Cat at Standing Stone Kennels have those dogs. So uh, we, uh, again, thank Ethan for joining us here. I hope you've learned something. I certainly have. I wish my dog had, but she's not. uh, uh, She ran off. (laughs) Until next time, this is Ron Spomer inviting you to subscribe to the channel. Thanking you from listening. Thanks for all of our patrons for supporting us and helping us to uh, continue doing this work. We really appreciate that. And you can check us out also at ronspomeroutdoors.com, our website. And until next time, hunt on us and shoot straight. fish are where you think they are. Any one of these casts could be the bite. It's the most exciting fishing that I know right here at Hawks Cave. Oh, that's awesome. Experience the best saltwater fishing the world has to offer. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6'8 Western. Oh, I'm ill there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.